Let us pray. Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. I always love this season. Uh, I always love this service. I always love walking into this sanctuary on this first Sunday of Advent, taking a deep breath, catching a scent of evergreen, uh, looking up front and seeing the bright colors of these poinsettias. I hear in the music, the songs, the hymns that we only sing this time of year. And then later this morning, we're going to come uh, to the Lord's table and taste uh, the bread and the cup of communion. Uh, this time of year, especially in the Northwest, uh, the days can get short and gray and uh, some days very wet. The nights are long and cold. But Advent and our preparations for Christmas bring our senses alive. And so this Advent season, we are, as you heard, going to talk about our senses and the ways that they draw us into this season. So next week, the sense of touch. It's the story of John the Baptist clothed in what I imagine to be very rough camel's hair and a rough leather belt. Then we'll talk about uh, sound, the sense of sound, the music that we sing and listen to this time of year. And then on the morning of the 24th, we'll talk about our sense of sight and what we see, the surprising things perhaps we see at Christmas. But today, we start with the sense of smell. And our sense of smell is remarkable. Uh, they say that our noses, or excuse me, our brains can differentiate over one trillion smells in total. I didn't even know there were a trillion smells. And there are a few smells I wish my brain didn't differentiate. But the thing about our sense of smell is that uh, unless there's damage to our, our olfactory sense, we can't not smell because we can't not breathe. We can cover our eyes and not see. We can cover our ears and not hear. But we have to breathe, so we have to smell. The other thing that's interesting about our sense of smell is that it's hard to describe scents and odors, especially to someone who hasn't smelled them. So some of us here of a certain age, I'm not really sure what exactly that age is, but some of us remember what mimeographed pages smell like. How many people remember mimeographed pages? So I don't know what the over-under is on this. How many of you don't even know what a mimeographed page is? Okay, it was, okay, see? So I'm guessing it's about mid-40s and up. Because mimeographs are like early copy machines. They would come on a drum. It had a very distinct color to it. And the, the sheets, when they came off, were a little damp, and they had a very particular odor. I haven't smelled a mimeograph sheet, uh, sheet in 30 or 40 years. I can... Yeah, I don't miss it that much, but I can recall it immediately. Some of us remember, but it's hard to describe to someone who never smelled a mimeographed sheet. And the thing is, there's a physiological reason for this. It has to do with where the olfactory signals are sent in our brains. So one neuroscientist wrote it this, uh, put it this way. Smell goes into the emotional parts of the brain and the memory parts, whereas words go into the thinking parts of the brain. I think, I think that neuroscientist kind of dumped it down for someone like me. But that's why it's hard to talk about smells. And it's also why smell is so nostalgic. The sense of smell, more than the other senses that we have, evokes emotional memories. And that may be especially true this time of year. So, for example, a couple of Saturdays ago, uh, my wife Molly made Pfeffernus cookies. Now, those are different from the pepper nuts that a lot of you make. Pfeffernus cookies in my family 
are bigger. They're bigger than a, a, a walnut. They're a little bit softer. They're heavily spiced, usually with anise, and then they're rolled in, uh, in powdered sugar, and they are delicious. So that was Saturday morning. I was out. I had some errands to run. As soon as I opened the door and walked in, I could smell that aroma of pfefferness wafting out from the kitchen, and I smiled. And I also realized I was thinking about my mom, and then I realized I was thinking even more about my grandmom and thinking about her making them when I was a kid. My grandmom made the best pfefferness cookies. My mom makes them. She's never been happy. She knows they don't quite measure up to my grandmom's. Molly makes them. Don't tell my mom I said this. Molly's are better than my mom's. But they're still not up to snuff with my grandmoms. My grandmoms were the best. And when I smelled those pfefferness, I remembered her. And, and I felt uh, the warmth and, and, and the delight and that sense of safety of being with her. Aromas evoke memories. Aromas take us back. And what happens, at least this happens for me, maybe it happens for you too. But in looking back, we remember what we are hoping for. Smell can evoke the kind of memories that we hope will come true again. And that, might be, and that may be why so many of us love Christmas so much. Because I remember Christmas as a kid. I remember my grandmom's pfefferness cookies. I remember Christmas with my other grandparents. Building a fire, which has its own distinct aroma. Building a fire with my other grandfather when we were at their house on Christmas Eve. And I remember the sense as a kid that I was surrounded by people who loved me. And that's what I hope for. I remember Christmas with our own kids when they were younger. I remember the laughter and the impatience, uh, the poorly kept secrets, the excitement. Our girls are on their own now, but that's what I hope will be true when they come back in just a few weeks and we can sit together around the dinner table again. I remember Christmas Eve services here. And if you've never been to one, I hope you can come this year. There comes a point at the end where we dim the, light, the lights and we light candles and we sing Silent Night and we say prayers. And for a moment in that stillness, even just a moment, peace really does seem possible. Peace in our hearts, peace on our homes, even peace on earth. I remember what I'm hoping for. Now, I'm sure there's things that I've forgotten. There's things I really don't want to remember because in the holidays, tempers can fray and people can get impatient and uh, there can be some disappointments. But I remember what I'm hoping for and I suppose what we're all hoping for. That we're hoping to be surrounded by family and friends, by people that love us, people that we love. We're hoping for laughter and happy surprises and moments of joy. And we're hoping for peace. Now, I know that life can be complex and get complicated. That life can be unpredictable, and sometimes it can be maddeningly predictable. There's some memories that are unhappy. Some memories are hard. Not all of us grew up surrounded by people who loved us, people who made us feel safe. Some memories are painful. There are people who are now missing from our lives, people who we miss desperately. And this season, the news we read, 
the news that we follow is hard, even horrifying. As we prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus, terrible war, terrible suffering, a terrible legacy of hatred and oppression is happening in the land of his birth. It can be hard to hold on to hope. And that's what Advent is for. Advent comes from a Latin word that means coming. And so in this season, we read and we remember the ancient words of the prophets, words that promise that God has come and that God will continue to come into our lives and into our world. We read and we remember the enduring words of Jesus, Jesus who has come to us, and Jesus who promises that his spirit will continue to come, continue the work of mercy and healing and compassion and justice. And this morning, we've heard, we've read, we remember these words of Jesus from Mark chapter 13, which if you were listening, uh, you realize have nothing to do with Christmas at all. By this point in Mark, Jesus is probably about 30 years old. But this text does have to do with hope. So by the time you get to chapter 13 in Mark, Jesus and his friends are in Jerusalem. Jesus is about to be arrested. In fact, right at the beginning of chapter 14, a plot is hatched to have him arrested and killed. And so all of the hopes, all of the fears of Jesus and his followers are colliding here. His friends had hoped that Jesus would be the Messiah, that he's the one who would make the world right. Jesus had talked expectantly of the kingdom, the kingdom coming. And now it seems that all of that will be lost. Now, by the time Mark actually wrote this story down, which would have been about 40 years later, people in the early church, the church that had arisen in the wake of Christ, that early church was living in unsettled times. Persecution, uh, in the summer of the year 64, half of Rome had burned and the emperor Nero took it out on Christians. Jerusalem itself was about to be overrun by the Romans. The temple would be destroyed. It was pretty much going to be the end of the world as they had known it. Now, that all happened a long time ago. But these days, it feels to me like the end of the world as we've known it, too. It's all happened a long time ago, but it feels very um, immediate. News is deeply distressing and disorienting. War seemingly without end. People with no safe place to go. The earth itself sometimes seems like it's coming apart at the seams. And for some of us, that distress is much more personal. It's a job that's lost or a relationship that's broken or an unwelcome diagnosis from a doc. The future we planned for, that we worked for, that we expected is now uncertain. So this reading is pretty timeless. And in the midst of that unsettledness, Jesus says, and this is verse 26, Jesus says, then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. They will see the Son of Man coming in great clouds. Which to our modern ears can be a little bit puzzling. But that phrase would have been very familiar to the people who first heard it on the lips of Jesus or read it from the pen of Mark. It's actually an apocalyptic image. Apocalypsis is a Greek word. It means revelation, unveiling. So this part of Mark 13 is written in apocalyptic language. It's end of the world stuff. In those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give light and stars will fall from the heavens. It's symbolic language. It's mythic language. It's meant to capture the profound disorientation of the moment and at the same time 
to reveal the deeper truth of what is really going on. So apocalyptic stories, readings like this one, are meant to reveal what's been hidden, what's hard to see, what's sometimes hard to believe. And what it reveals here is that even in the world is coming apart, that people can endure and hold on to hope because God will come. The Son of Man will come in clouds with great power and glory, and we trust will make the world just and right and whole. There are times that life seems kind of futile. Times it seems crazy to hold on to that kind of hope in the face of our fears. And that's, I'm sure, how the disciples felt in this story today. Soon they'll watch Jesus be arrested. He'll be convicted at a show trial. He'll be crucified by the Romans. And it was the end of the world as they knew it. Because on Easter, God raised Christ from the dead. And a whole new world began. Now that's a story for a Sunday that comes a little later in the spring. But on this Sunday, this Advent Sunday, we read this story from Mark 13 to remember. To remember, first of all, that we're preparing not just for Christmas, but for the coming of Christ. Christ who continues to come to us in the power of his spirit, making, po- making it possible for us to follow his way. Christ who promises to come again so finally and so fully that God's will, that God's mercy, God's justice will be done on earth as in heaven. And we read this text, secondly, to to push out the parameters of our hope. You know, when we grow up, get a little bit older, we tend to lose the wild-eyed hopefulness of our childhood. We become much more modest, much more measured in our expectations. But the gospel pushes us to hope for nothing less than the promise of what the angels sang in the night sky at the birth of Jesus. Glory to God in the highest, and peace to God's people on earth. Peace on earth. Rather than giving in, rather than giving up, rather than settling for whatever normal seems to be, rather than letting ourselves become apathetic or cynical, Jesus pushes us to live in hope. Hope that the poor will be blessed, that the ones who mourn will be comforted. I hope that our children, all children, can live and play free of fear, that all the families of the earth will have what they need to thrive. And even when our horizons shrink, even when we can't see far beyond our own pain or loss or the grief that we're carrying, Jesus promises to be with us, to stay with us to endure with us. When our fear and our anxiety are fierce, that's the hope of our faith, that God is with us, always. And so on this first Sunday of Advent, we're pushed to hope for God's future. Lives made whole, the world made right, for nothing less than peace on earth. Now, in the second part of this reading, uh, Jesus urges his followers, us, to be attentive, to be watchful, to be awake to what is going on. He urges us not to miss or ignore or lose faith in the power of God's love to make all things new. And so he tells a parable, a short parable. He says it's like a man going on a journey. He puts his workers in charge, each with their own work to do. As followers of Jesus, as people who trust as best we can in his way, in his truth, in the kind of life that he lived, Each of us has work to do, even as we wait and wonder, even when it's hard to see what's ahead. 
Even when it's hard to tell if it makes any difference at all, each of us has work to do. And part of our work is making memories. Making memories for ourselves and our kids, for our neighbors, near and far. Memories of what we hope for. Now smell, the sense of smell evokes memories. So I wonder, what does love smell like? What does joy smell like? What do you think kindness smells like? What does justice smell like? There's a great line in 2 Corinthians where the Apostle Paul writes, uh, and this is from a translation title called The Message. Um, Paul writes, In the Messiah, in Christ, God leads us from place to place. Through us, God brings knowledge of Christ. Everywhere we go, people breathe in the exquisite fragrance. Because of Christ, we give off a sweet scent rising to God, which is recognized by those on the way of salvation, an aroma redolent of life. I love that last line, an aroma redolent of life. An aroma redolent of love, of joy, of kindness, of justice. What do those smell like? And I don't mean just metaphorically. What do they smell like practically? I mean, maybe it's just making pfeffernus, making pepperness with your kids or your grandkids or your nieces or nephews. Or taking bread or brownies or pie or even fruitcake to your neighbors. Maybe it's partnering with um, community partners like Night Strike or Mainspring or Family Promise so that folks uh, have something good to eat. Maybe it's supporting Mennonite Central Committee. We're going to take an offering on, on, this, on Christmas Eve on the 24th so that people in Gaza have necessities like soap and shampoo, toothpaste. How do we give off a sweet scent? How do we create memories of what we hope for? So this Advent season, be attentive to the smells of life. Be mindful of the memories that those smells create for you and for others. And may we give off an aroma redolent of life. Amen.